This episode is sponsored by SH Building Group. The experienced team of professionals at SH Built consists of client, site, accounting, subcontractor, design, and craft building specialists. They integrate the latest construction management technology and offer home guardianship services and advanced inspections. Tom Sherlock and his team helped remodel my home and their attention to detail was unsurpassed. Start planning a project today. Visit shbuilt.com or call 970-923-1122 and tell them you heard about them on Selling the Mountains. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Christian Knapp. This is Selling the Mountains, a show about the booming mountain town real estate economy and unique personalities fueling it. Each episode is an insider's perspective on market trends, lifestyle, success stories, and the ups and downs of home ownership in the mountains. Christian Knapp is the former chief marketing officer of Aspen Skiing Company and a lifelong mountain town enthusiast. He is an accomplished marketing and sales leader who has worked for the top resorts in North America including Aspen, Vail, Breckenridge, and Keystone. Currently, Christian is an independent consultant and principal at Moment of Truth, a boutique marketing firm specializing in brand development, strategic planning, and digital execution. All opinions expressed by Christian and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the companies or clients they represent. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for real estate investment decisions. My guests today are Jason Blevins and Skippy Mesero. Jason is an award-winning writer at the Colorado Sun, a digital media outlet focused on local journalism, directed by readers, and owned by journalists. Jason has been covering Colorado business, sports, tourism, mountain culture, and the resort industry for decades, and recently penned several in-depth stories on the affordable mountain town housing crisis currently impacting Colorado. Skippy Mesero is serving his first term as Aspen's youngest city council person and has served as a political intern, staffer, campaign manager, activist, and organizer at the national, state, and now hyper-local levels. To subsidize his public service habit, he's the general manager of Skyrun Aspen, a vacation rental and property management business. Skippy is an outspoken advocate for affordable housing in Aspen and chairman of the board for the Aspen Pickin County Housing Authority. In our conversation, we discussed how the pandemic-fueled mountain town housing boom has exacerbated the affordable housing crisis. The issue is currently playing out in towns across the West and is on the minds of workers, longtime locals, elected officials, regional housing authorities, and more. The lack of affordable housing is more acute than ever and has transitioned into a labor crisis. My guests offer their deep understanding of this topic coupled with firsthand knowledge. We hone in on the problem and offer potential solutions to this volatile issue that is truly an existential threat to the character that makes our communities so special. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Jason and Skippy. This episode is brought to you by One Snowmass Residence Club, located in the heart of the new Snowmass Space Village. This limited collection of ski and scout residences lets you choose any ownership plan that fits your family's lifestyle. With two, three, and four bedroom options available, you can select the size that makes sense for you and how much time you want to spend in Snowmass. Customize the perfect ownership with guaranteed use at specific times of the year, plus unlimited use of three additional types of long or short-term reservations. And the revolutionary exit strategy allows you and the other owners in your shared residence to voluntarily sell the unit as whole ownership and distribute the proceeds proportionally. An online reservations portal 
housekeeping, and concierge services plus resort-style amenities means smarter mountain living. To learn more, visit onesnomassresidenceclub.com. So Skippy, anything in your origin story um, from back in your days in Illinois and working on political campaigns that listeners should know? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think listeners should know that, you know, I was have been dedicated to public service for really my entire adult life now. And, um, you know, the location has uh, changed, but I just feel really grateful to be in the community I love most in the entire world and being able to operate on a hyper local level where we can actually create real change. Jason, how about you? You've been in the mountains here in Colorado and been a reporter for a long time. What's new with you? Hey, coming up on uh, 25 years of kind of covering news and business in the, in mountain towns in the Western slope of Colorado. And, you know, I've been telling folks lately the past year, really six months as I sort of, you know, survey my beat and call people and talk to folks around the state. Every single conversation right now is coming back to housing. Every single conversation. Like it's it's unbelievable what is going on, what has happened in the past year. And you literally cannot talk about anything in the mountains right now without the conversation turning back to the what's going on with housing right now. I think that's correct. And it's and it's certainly been a central theme of selling the mountains podcast. And you know, I think Really, we're looking at it in the primary context. We're looking at it for this show is more the the phenomenon and the and the the velocity of transactions happening at the high dollar volume, but the output of that or the the side effect of that is that locals, which were already compromised in terms of their ability to afford to live in these towns, has been compromised further um, with this housing boom. And so I've you know I always ask my guests you know. How, what is the tension between selling you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollar homes versus the affordability factor for locals? And, you know, and how long is that cycle going to last? Jason, is that anything that you've picked up on in your recent conversations? Sure. You know, it, we looked at last year, you know, and I, I pulled all the sales volume and prices and everything. And, you know, obviously 2020 was a record setting year exponentially with some of the increases. And the crazy thing, first quarter of 2021 has kept that pace up. If not, it's even going faster. So we are not seeing any sort of ebbing or slowing of this uh, this trend. And, you know, it's just, it's it's trickled down from, you know, the Tom Cruise houses and Telluride to every house. You know, every property in the mountains, in these resort communities right now is is uh, being targeted. People want it and they're willing to pay whatever. They're waiving all sorts of stipulations on the purchase agreement and they are picking it up for, you know, highest price ever per square foot. And that is having a trickle down effect to everyone who's ever lived in these communities. Skippy, does that translate to your experience, what you're hearing on the ground here in Aspen? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, when our affordable housing program was launched, back in the 70s, right? It was in response to the Lifty 
uh, can't afford to live here and without a lift running, nobody's going to come, right? It was, it was about that narrow segment of a population. By the time we got to the 80s, the community goal was to house 60% of the workforce because it wasn't just the lifty anymore, but it was the lifty and the waitress, right? That, that envelope of human that needed a subsidized house to maintain in the community had expanded. <laughs> well, guess what? During COVID, uh, when a studio apartment is now trading for six or seven hundred thousand dollars and a one bedroom apartment for one to two and a half million, well, now your two lawyers and doctors also can't afford to be here. So, yeah, the expansion of who this system is needed to serve if the goal is to house um, and maintain a real lived in community has has yeah, rocket fuel for the last uh, year and a half. Let's address that a little bit. Let's set the stage. You know, it's been widely reported, right? The pandemic fueled a move to the mountains and demand like we've never seen before. And 2020 finished the year at record levels of volume of transactions, both dollars and numbers. And, you know, to the point where towns like Vail and Aspen exceeded 3 billion each. And Jason, I think you reported on something north of like 15 billion in real estate transactions across all of Colorado mountain towns in the last year. And that was just in 2020, the pandemic impacted year. Now we're in a less impacted year. Velocity of of transaction continues to happen at a very high rate. And, you know, some of the apples to apples numbers aren't really correct because last year at this time, everybody was quarantined and unable to do a lot of business. Um, but suffice it to say, there is still incredible amounts of transactions happening. People want to be in the mountains. They want to be in these towns. They're able to work from home. They're looking for lifestyle and they're looking for flexibility and are willing to put down roots in these towns in many cases. And the trickle down effect's been amazing. You know, I mean, you can't ask a builder, a designer, an architect, an engineer, or a professional that works in this trade how their business is without hearing that they're just overwhelmed. They can't keep up with demand. So in that sense, it's been a huge boom and a positive for the local economies. But the irony is that we're pushing out locals even further and making it even harder for them to be able to afford to live in these towns. And this pandemic-fueled uh, move to the mountains is only exacerbating that issue. But before we jump in you know, and talk more in detail, Jason, I w one of your articles, you kind of looked back and you talked about the boom and then the subsequent bust that happened around the last recession in 2007, 2008. And can you give us a little context of what happened then and how you think this, um, this boom is going to end? Well, that's a good question. Um, no one knows how this one's going to end, but we do know how the previous one ended. You know, on the surface, they appeared the same. There was just un incredible demand, people paying crazy amounts of money. Uh, and really, you know, a high interest in, in, you know, owning something in the high country. Everybody wanted to be up here. And how can we blame them, really? And we all know how that ended. But that ended with sort of external factors, right? Like people were getting, you know, no interest down payments and, and, and you know, just incredible loans. And you could qualify for anything. And it was like this fake money was flying around everywhere. And that... You know, the signs were there that that was not sustainable. Whereas this time around, it's a demand issue and a supply issue. Demand has never been higher and supply has never been lower. 
when it, when you have that sort of imbalance in a supply demand scenario, demand usually wins. You know, people are going to keep spending if they have the money and they want to be here. They're going to keep coming. So, how can we blame them? You know, I've said that over and over, but we can't blame the person that moves in next door to us because they want to live in this awesome place just as much as we do. Just because they were a little late to the game doesn't mean you know they they shouldn't be here. So. It's kind of an interesting way to look at how this um, this boom's going to end. But, you know, everyone seems to agree we can't sustain the pace we're at. But there's also a growing uh, recognition that even if things do slow down, we've created a new bottom. You know, we're 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 at a new level and it's hard to imagine it kind of going, you know, back down and collapsing like it did in 08 and 09. That's a really strong point, right? And I've had interviews on this show where talking to brokers who couldn't believe, you know, talking about 10, 20 years ago when the price per square foot in Aspen cracked 1,000 per square foot. And that just seemed unbelievable at the time and unsustainable. And, and you know, could that, that, there's no way that that growth could continue. And now we're seeing pricing well north of 2,000 a square foot and even up to 3,000 plus for a really nice property in town, Aspen. Skippy, you know, based on your experience living in and spending so much time in Aspen, do you, do you think this is sustainable? Are we on the precipice of a bubble or is Aspen impervious to that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I am not a, uh, I'm not a broker. I'm not a real estate professional. I think that's outside the scope of of my expertise. I think I'm on here to, to talk about like what do we do with now, right? How can we, uh, how can we address and meet this moment as it is, and protect, maintain in our community with the constraints that we have, right? I'll let I'll let I'll let you and others speak to the the real estate speculation. No, it, that's a great point, and I appreciate your honesty there because, you know, like you said, houses are going to continue to transact. There is demand that's unprecedented, and the price has been set, and it's very high. And Jason, you know, you're living, you live over in Eagle County, in in the town of Eagle in the Vale area, and also own property in the Arkansas Valley. You know, what what are you, what's happening in those areas so that listeners can understand a little bit more context outside of the Aspen area? You know, there's. A lot of these communities like Buena Vista, you know, did they ever really see affordable housing as a critical issue as it is right now? Probably not. You know, it's a pretty small community and homes have always been pretty affordable there. But once they've kind of been discovered, once people say like, this is a really cool place to live, um, you know, they're feeling all kinds of pressures and it's it's a new kind of pressure for them, at least at this level. Um, so, you know, I think there's really not a community on the Western slope that is immune to this demand right now. And, you know, it's not just the resort communities for years. People have commuted out of the, you know, from, you know, these sort of down Valley communities into resort communities to work. And in that time that this has happened, we've seen those, these outlying communities develop their own economies. So, why would a worker spend an hour and 90 minutes on a bus every day to go into Aspen to work for 15 bucks an hour when they could do it at their hometown and who, wherever they are, where are they? Carbondale, Glenwood, Silt, Rifle, you know, they, these down Valley communities have created their own vibrant economies. And we're starting to see, you know, this housing crisis turn into a labor crisis and you know these are these are issues that have always percolated but they are boiling over the edge of the pot right now 
Can you just expound on that a little bit? What are you hearing on the labor side? You know, I've, I've heard mixed, you know, I've, I've heard for sure, like the hospitality industry, restaurants, servers, waitstaff, um, retail, all of that is being impacted dramatically coming out of the pandemic. They just, you know, people just can't find workers to fill those spots and they have to abbreviate their hours and truncate their seasons to make it work. But on the flip side, I'm hearing, you know, that in the construction trade, those, those businesses are having no problem finding people and there's, and there's good supply there. Um, so it is sort of all over the place. What are you hearing? Well, I think in your Valley, you know, you have such a robust construction trade economy, you know, very robust, some of the best in maybe the West. So, you know, Aspen, I don't think will ever be in, you know, in a shortage of, of construction labor, but you know, when you go to Grand County, so you add in the 200 plus homes that were burned in the East Troublesome Fire and this, you know, incredible demand, people buying their homes and wanting renovations. And, you know, there's three to five year delays on booking your contractor for anything in Grand County. Same with the Arc Valley. You know, we're seeing a really growing kind of embrace of modular housing, um, largest affordable housing community in in you know, the last two, three decades is under construction right now in gypsum. And they are putting those houses up in a day. They come on the, on the back of a semi and within a day, that house is up and ready. And within two days, it's livable. It's one of the most amazing things you could see. And, you know, I think we're going to see as the construction trades really start to, you know, evaporate in these communities, Modular housing is going to be the way, really the only answer. If you can find land, that is, of course. If you can find the land, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Obermeyer Wood Investment Council, an independent investment advisory and financial planning firm based in Aspen and Denver with roots dating back to 1982. Their team of experienced investors, thoughtful financial advisors, and focused problem solvers have helped hundreds of individuals, families, and nonprofits identify and achieve goals using sound advice, careful planning, and clear communication. They are locally based experts, dedicated community members, and proud sponsors of Selling the Mountains. Obermeyer Wood would like to offer all listeners a complimentary, no pressure investment portfolio review with one of their experienced team members. To schedule a review or to learn more about their services, visit obermeyerwood.com. Skippy, what's, you know, you're an elected official. What are your constituents? What are you hearing from your constituents? Uh, on housing availability in particular or on, on building? What what specifically are you? Housing housing in particular and the labor market. Sure. Um, so, I mean, on the, on the labor market side, uh, you find me a hotel, a restaurant, a service industry company that's not trying to hire right now, and I would be surprised. It's it's as as difficult as it's ever been. You know, I was talking to a business the other day. We're trying to work on our on our composting, right? On our waste reduction. And I said, you know, to this business owner privately, like, hey, you guys used to do a really great job at this. Like what, what's going on? Like you're you're not doing it anymore. And I, I I'm not that's not a criticism, but I want to understand why it's not working because clearly you are someone who's a business owner who's motivated to do this. 
and you're not doing it. So if I can understand why it's not working for you, maybe we can build that in to make sure we're not all going to be failing in the future. And they just said straight up staffing. Like I cannot get people. I can't keep them. I can't train them. And if I did, I can't reprimand them because they will immediately leave because every other business in town is hiring. Right. That's, that's the degree to which it is. I mean, you go into a restaurant where you're paying, I mean, not me, cause <laughs> it's not in my budget, but somebody's paying, you know, $60 for an entree. And it's not very good because they've turned over to their chef three times in the last three months and they currently don't have one. And I can't speak to the construction industry and what their staffing is, but I can tell you once that house goes up, whether it's a $20 million spec home uh, or a studio that was built in the 60s here in Aspen, if your dishwasher goes out, if you get a plumbing problem, you're going to wait on that thing for weeks at best. So uh, the housing crunch is as difficult as it's, um, as it's really ever been. And and that's despite having a, a big head start in terms of affordable housing inventory. So you would constitute that and you would say that it is truly impacting the customer service level here in Aspen. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. It hasn't this always been an issue though, Skippy? Like to some degree, sure. this, I mean, we've sure. always struggled to find employees, but you just think it's more, it's just more acute now. It's, it's more acute. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... The construction, the lack of construction labor is going to really hurt communities as they try to, you know, build, develop, develop affordable housing um, and attainable housing. We're about to see, you know, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars rolling into Colorado for affordable housing. And how is that going to look when there are literally not developers or builders to plan and build these, these, you know, high density projects? And that's, you know the construction labor shortage right now, which you're seeing across the across the high country, is going to you know further delay the development of affordable housing to where it's. I wonder if it's going to be possible to build our way out of this crisis. Let's unpack that a little bit. So you know you've been reporting and looking at various communities. You know, in, in my, my research for this show, you know, Telluride was one you cited that is at crisis level. And they're trying to figure out how to get more affordable housing or attainable housing, as you said. How are they addressing that? <laughs> well, they're struggling. You know, there's you're starting to see more communities kind of adopting what they're calling emergency declarations, something akin to the day after a flood or a fire. You know, that's that the level that it's reached. These emergency declarations temporarily suspend municipal codes, make it easier for uh, developers to build density, um, eliminate the competitive request for proposal RFP process that enables, uh, you know, that that a community will put out and it'll take two years while people give them plans. And then they they sit and think about those plans. Now they're just going to hit a developer and be like, build it now. So these emergency declarations that are coming, there's some in Summit and Frisco and one over the weekend in Crested Butte uh, are going to enable these communities to kind of more quickly adapt. But the end of the road spots, Telluride, Aspen, Crested Butte, you know, you don't, you just don't have the land, you know, like Telluride, they just spent three and a half million for a third of an acre in downtown that they can't even go underground on because of the uh, water table. You know, the, I don't know how that could ever be affordable. 
Skippy, let's talk about that a little bit. So you are the chairman of the board for the Aspen Pitkin County Housing Authority, which is the regulatory body that oversees the affordable housing program here in the Aspen area. You know, tell us a little bit about the organization and what it's done to help, you know, help locals find housing here. Yeah. Um, so it's important to make that distinction, right? APCHA, APCHA, or the Aspen Pickin County Housing Authority is the regulatory body. So it's the group that sets the rules for affordable housing. You know, what is a category? What are income limits? Those, those types of things. What is the deed restriction look like? What are we limiting price and appreciation to? All of, all of that sort of governance is there. It also manages some, but not all of the units because some of our units are owned. So they're managed by their own ownership or HOA. Um, and then of the rentals, some are APCHA managed and others are not. Others are not. So APCHA has been around housing. Affordable housing has been around really since the 70s is when it first got its start in this Valley. APCHA has, has, you know, molded and shifted its governance structure several times over those years, most recently with a, a rewritten IGA. And really under our new board structure, I think the board is poised to take some really big steps at modernizing and bringing our regulatory framework up to the needs of today, for which, in my view, it, it is not meeting. Um, and, and as a result, our existing system is operating suboptimally, right? Which in a space-constrained environment, right? In a land-scarce environment, um, that's a travesty, right? Because you want to get the most out of what you already have. Separate from that, right? My role on our city council, and it's important because most this is so weedsy. I hope anyone turned off the thing is coming back on. But um, most housing authorities do the development themselves, which is not the case with APSHA, right? It is the case that the city and the county do the actual development or creation of housing in our valley, not APCHA. And the city does the primary amount of that because we happen to have a RET, good looks, people in the background who got that in before they were no longer allowed, which means we have the biggest pot of money to go ahead and do that. So in my role on city council, that's where my eye is towards the creation of uh, new housing. And I say creation very particularly because one means of creating is building, developing, but it's not the only one. And again, to Jason's point, to actually get to where we need to be in terms of number of bedrooms to house our workforce, building alone can't get it done. No, so no, it, it's there's a lot to on you know there's a lot there. But um, you know, I think for listeners though, and for listeners in other mountain towns that may be struggling with this, which sounds like pretty much is universal. Aspen is ahead of the curve. You know, there is somewhere around 3,000 units, both rentals and whole ownership units that are uh, in the deed restricted housing program or rent subsidy program. And that has allowed locals, if you will, people that are employed in the valley to live in the in the core of Aspen and in the immediate vicinity to keep vitality in the town. And this is something that a lot of towns in the mountains didn't get ahead. They're trying to build now. So what you know, what is working here, Skippy, and what is not? Well, it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think what's what's clearly working is having affordable housing in a community. What's clearly working is making a commitment to housing your workforce in town 
it works for the workforce, but it also works for the community, right? I mean, I, I think um, traveling around to other mountain towns, you know, what makes one of the things that makes Aspen truly special to me is that that we really have a full lived-in community. As a local, that's amazing, but it's also what is parts of what sets the tourist experience apart from other places. I, I grew up in Chicago, but I grew up as one of those tourists, right? I my grandparents started coming to Aspen in the 50s. And you know, if we had more than two days off of school, like we were coming here summer or winter. And anytime I arrived, it, it felt like I was in my other home, right? Because there was the same people that you would come back and be friends with and interact with. And it's it's still the case. Um, but but without having people here, it, it doesn't happen, right? I think the, the, the phrase that I like to steal is like, there is no community of character without the characters who live in it. That is absolutely working. In terms of specifically, I mean, you know, having, having the units that we have is working. Um, having a, a funding source, and I'll say funding source rather than the particular kind, because the kind that we have primarily for development is not available to other communities, but having a dedicated funding source is working. Having a growth management quota system, a GMQS system, historically has worked. And that's basically just something that says, if you're going to build something, be it commercial or residential, you have an obligation under the code to provide X amount of affordable housing based on the employees that that will generate, right? So for communities just getting started that are still in their development stage, that's a really, really effective tool. Things that aren't working, right? As you mentioned, we have an aging infrastructure, both in terms of humans and buildings. That's not a bad thing, right? That means that We've had the benefit of affordable housing for 40 years, and it means that we get to retain amazing community members who had the foresight to do things like this and other things that provide us this incredible place to live. And the reality is, if we're going to continue to provide housing for our workforce in our community, well, we have a lot of maintenance and capital reserve issues that we just didn't plan for, right? There are there are huge projects that need to be done that there isn't money for. There are HOAs that are underfunded that haven't lived up to their end of the bargain. There are property owners who have done a great job keeping up their units. There are other property owners who have done a really terrible job keeping up their units. And because it's a scarce resource, they pass along a home to somebody else uh, at, at, at the same value uh, as they would if it was nice, um, but someone else is inheriting something that's not livable, right? That's not working. And if we are going to house a generation of people that, that built this system in our community and our workforce, we simply need more housing. I think in many ways, because we're a victim of our own success in that because we have done such a good job of providing housing for our community, i.e. the vast majority of voters, and let's be honest, right? Older people vote more than younger people. People who have housing vote more than people who don't have housing. What's happened is we have anesthetized to many of our voters the acute need of housing, right? They still see the need because they're in it. They appreciate it. They are grateful for it, but you know, it's not hundred percent of their friends or immediate network who are either not able to hire or not able to find a house to be here. And so that's where you get that interplay of, you know, do we need more density? Do we need more development? Um, and how does that meet sort of the voter base? Jason, 
you know, does that ring true with you? What are you hearing from other towns that are, you know, their housing programs, their affordable housing programs are less mature than Aspen's? Yeah. I'm, I, one of the first stories I wrote at the Colorado Sun a few years ago was the challenge of um, people growing old and retiring in their affordable housing in, in the Aspen area. You know, these are the folks that they paid their dues. They're 40 years into, you know, their work and they're, they're ready to retire. They deserve to retire. But, you know, if they're in workforce housing, how do you work with them to, you know, do you force them out? Is that the reward after, you know, 40 years in affordable housing and, and working in the service industry or working in that community that once they quit working, they have to move that that's a, that's a real tough issue that I don't think there's an easy answer for. Um, it, it probably, the answer is found somewhere in the idea of building kind of retirement community type housing. And that's, that's tough. You know, that's a, that's a hard sell, but, uh, yeah, everybody, the dedicated source of funding, everyone looks to APCHA, you know, that is, you guys are the oldest housing authority in the country and really the most robust in, in the West. And, People are watching you guys, Skippy, and seeing how you address these sort of maturation problems and these second generation type of issues because they know that that's on the horizon for them. So really everything you guys do in Aspen is something that everyone watches across the Western Slope because you're 10, 20 years ahead, even, even more. The answer that you come to from a policy position on how to deal with any number of issues, be it retirement or otherwise, very much come down to what is your intention? Like, what is the goal of this, right? Because if the if the goal is community housing, right, to have a lived-in community, which for me personally is the goal, right? Like, I think this is about maintaining a sense of community, a historical context, about a, a lived environment. Well, in that scenario, then, then it's a pretty easy decision because a, a primary characteristic of community is the generational transfer of knowledge. And you want to have, you know, the, the kid going to Aspen High School living next to somebody who hung out with Hunter S. Thompson, right? Like, like that's just like a, that's a feature that is required for a community. And so in that scenario, then the question becomes, great, how can we provide housing for the retiree, provide housing for the worker, and do so in a way that's efficient and respectful of our built environment, right? That's totally different than if you had said, we want workforce housing. We want to make sure that there's somebody to spin the lifts, getting paid $12 an hour, so that you know our tourist or guest can come in and have a good experience. And whether that person at the end of their lift day enjoys their day or is here for a season and then leaves, we don't care, right? In that scenario, you would then look at that same problem and say, well, we want to preserve the environment for the guest or the tourist. We want to be perhaps respectful of our environmental goals. And so we really don't want to have any more housing. If anything, we want to get more efficient with what we have. It housed those workers 30 years ago. It should be able to do it now, right? And so I think we're, we, we are in a place where we are struggling with that. And you know, if I were to be advising other communities who are at the beginning of this journey, you know, I would suggest getting really, really clear and in align with, with your community on what is your real long-term 
North Star and and answering those questions from a unified understanding. This episode of Selling the Mountains is brought to you by Basalt River Park, a new riverfront neighborhood in historic downtown Basalt, Colorado. After an extraordinary community-wide planning effort, Basalt River Park is pleased to offer five brand new Water's Edge residences, impeccably designed by CCY Architects. The homes overlook the Roaring Fork River and have easy walkability to downtown Basalt. This is a community-minded development that includes the farm-to-table restaurant, free-range kitchen, riverfront office and retail spaces, and a new town park. To stay in the know, call 970-927-8080 or visit basaltriverpark.com. One of those towns that's really in the crucible of this that, Jason, you've reported on is Frisco over in Summit County. And the mayor there, Hunter Mortensen, has been pretty outspoken. He made a bold statement. He said, we're really at risk of creating the modern era ghost town in our mountain towns where the lights are on and no one has a home to live in. Jason, tell us a little more about that statement. Do you think it's true? And is that issue in Frisco uh, really at a crisis level? Um, Yes, for sure. And other communities have actually come around on that. One of the interesting things we saw over this weekend, Crested Butte sent out a letter to every person who's ever visited Crested Butte and said, if you're coming, please have patience. Be ready for very long waits at our restaurants. Be very for be ready for very subpar service. We we do not have the staff to do it. So. I mean, we're already seeing businesses go dark. We're already seeing the Uray Brewery um, last week announced they were closing at 7 p.m. every night, a bar. Um, they are closing early every night because they don't have staff. So, you know, what's what's the answer here? I don't think there's a quick one, but, you know, it's like, like Skippy said, you're not going to build your way out of this and you're not going to regulate your way out of this and you're not going to unregulate your way out of this there's sort of this combination of these three forces that have to come together at one time and you know we are in in at the precipice of a very significant cultural shifts if we are going to ask all our workers in these resort towns to drive in from afar spend a couple hours a day commuting for their 15 to 20 hour a, you know, twenty dollar an hour job. We are really going to change the way these communities look if we don't have cool people living in them, and everybody's a vacationer and a tourist, and you know, a second homeowner. Well, and to your point about Crested Butte, there is actually talk about a, a worker strike yeah. over the Fourth of July week. What do you know about that? <laughs> That's going to be interesting. You know. There's talk of that. I really don't know if it has traction because everybody who's talking about it recognizes that, you know, you know you're going to punish the business owners and the business owners are on the front lines of this issue and they're not causing the problem. You know, they are doing everything they can to try to get housing and get staffing and get workers, you know, so they can keep their business alive. And, 
you know, there, there's a growing recognition that a worker strike will punish them possibly more than anybody else. But at the same time, how else can they get this message and share with the people who are visiting and share with their local leaders that, you know, housing needs to be the top priority and the, the feel and character of the community is at risk if it's not addressed immediately. So, you know, I think there's, there's a number of very interesting plans. You know, I talked to a councilman in Crested Butte who was talking about, you know, how about an Occupy Crested Butte? How about a tent city on Elk Avenue? <laughs> well, how would that look on your pedestrian mall in Aspen? You know, like, <laughs> Skippy, I hear you laughing think, over there. I'm laughing because I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, you know, these are these are ideas that have never You've never heard of them before, and uh, but it's we've reached such a critical point that these ideas are, are are actually, you know, not only just being floated by the one crazy guy that you know can't seem to find a house, but a growing chorus of longtime workers and locals who have spent, you know, years paying their dues in these communities, and they one thing happened, and they're house that they lived in sold and now they can't live in that community anymore we're talking about town councilmen you know town council people who can't live in their communities anymore and they're quitting their job and moving you know to ridgeway or they're they're leaving these communities because they can't find a place to live and you know we've reached such a critical level that you know this sort of unheard of ideas are coming around you know are we going to have a, a tent community in downtown aspen Downtown Crested yeah. Butte, tell you right, could be. You know, Jason, I won't. I won't mention their name because I don't know if they would be okay with you sharing. You know who that is, but I, I know which council person you're you're yeah. talking about from from Crested Butte, and um, and you know, like I'll, I'll be totally honest. Like I might be in the same boat in six months, right? Like I I rent a 320, 350 square foot studio in town. It's free market. Um, I did that because. I was raised that unless you need something, you don't take something, right? And and you know I'm a, I'm a category three qualified individual, but I felt like I could afford it, and so um, someone else who needed it more should have it. You know the amount of times my landlord has has told me how how quote unquote lucky I am to still be getting the place at this rate during during COVID and. And you know, I, I I think it's quite possible that that my rent in six months goes up to what what has been described to be as quote market rate end quote um, of like thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars a month for a wow. studio. Right. So so when when I, I should say uh, if that happens, because I'll be hopeful. If that happens, I'm out. Right. Like z- zero chance, not possible. Um, and then. I cross my fingers and, and hope that, you know, one of the, you know, 10 or 20 lotteries I've lost, maybe I get lucky between now and then, but like, I could be very much in the boat of that same as that council person soon. Right. That's not, that's not lost on me. You know, there's colleagues in uh, Telluride, born and raised Telluride natives who have been forced out of town and work on that town council that are no longer on the town council because they can't live in that town. Let's use the last portion of the show, you guys, to really talk about solutions, right? I think 
Um, you've done a great job of setting the stage. We are in crisis mode in the mountain towns and some are more ahead of it than others. And others are learning from others. And, you know, and it's, this is going to unravel over the next few years and it's going to be an extraordinarily challenging time to find, you know, land to build on, to get, um, the funding together, to do it, to find builders, to do it. The cost of lumber has gone through the roof. But what, what are the solutions that are really going to help um, mitigate this effort uh, going forward? Um, Jason, do you have any thoughts? We're going to need density, and you're going to have to adjust codes to allow for density. Density is a dirty word in every community out there, but if you want the workers, you need to have density. So somewhere in your building code, you need to have apartment complexes. I know it's hard to even ponder, but there's a growing recognition that, you know, five houses here, 10 houses here, you know, a few units there, that is not going to fix this. We need entire Miller Ranch type properties, entire communities of lottery deed restricted housing, which is a secondary housing market for locals. It needs to be built into the code. Um, you need to work with developers to incentivize them to build right here. You know, you talk to countless developers and they're like, dude, I could go build, you know, that $20 million house and have one crazy owner that I have to deal with versus building 200 units in your community and dealing with your crazy city council every, you know, all the time. So, you know, they're, they're like, why do I want to do that? When people sue me, they yell at my kids in school. They call me a villain because I'm trying to build an apartment complex when I could just build that crazy house up in the hills, you know, so developers don't want to do this and they really are on the front front lines. And if we want affordable housing, we need them. <laughs> so there's, there's a number of things that can be done. And what's crazy is the money's coming and, you know, we need to get our housing authority people, you know, they need to work with that money. We need to get, you know, stakeholders in there. We need to figure out a way to, not bog down every affordable housing project with lawsuits and, and nimbyism and really find a way to, you know, fast track those approvals so we can keep these communities vibrant. Does it mean that the community is going to change? Yes, but every community is changing. <laughs> That's part of, of the way a community grows. Can you protect your community and grow? I think you can. I hope we can because we don't have another choice. So it's it's a matter of accommodating more in a, in a denser sort of situation. So communities need to identify where they want density, put it there, and then really give that land to a developer and say, build it. And that's, that's pretty much, it's a combination of building your way out of it, creating laws to incentivize developers to do it, and clearing up laws that allow, you know, that kind of, that kind of, you know, housing. Let's talk about NIMBYism for a second, because, you know, Skippy, as you well know, here as a elected official on the council, you know, this is a, an issue day in, day out, uh, whenever a new project's proposed um, that has higher density or maybe needs a zoning uh, adjustment. How, can, how, is that, um, how is that going on in your point of view, uh, as you see here in Aspen? Look, I mean, look, NIMBYism is a problem everywhere, right? And, and, and there's no question that it is here 
as well. Um, I mean, the, the emails I get from people talking about like creating ghettos <laughs> when they mean four units of affordable housing are like offensive to, to anyone and not just me as a Jew, right? Like, um, yeah, so it exists. Um, I think that there's a misalignment in the process. Uh, as was just said, if you wanna build the thing that is least beneficial long-term to our community, which is a $25 million spec home that sits empty 50 weeks a year, but has the heat on <laughs> and everything else burning fossil fuels, then by right, you just get to go build that. But if you wanna deliver the thing that the community needs most, which is high quality, high density, affordable housing for citizens, community members that make this community run, all of a sudden you have to jump through every possible hoop, right? Like that, that, that fundamentally doesn't make sense. Like we need to flip that around, right? It's like, you know, when uh, driver's licenses in Illinois went from opt in to opt out on organ donation, all of a sudden 60% of people increase their, they, they decided to donate organs, right? So like the conditions matter. So I think there's some structural work that we need to do to prioritize the things we actually need as a community and deprioritize the things that are harming us as a community. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, it's a struggle, right? There's a, there's something playing out right now in town where a developer wants to build a higher density, affordable housing apartment complex. And it's just, it's mired in lawsuits. It's a multi-year process to get through the approvals and you know and just it just slows it down it takes it's more litigation and people will fight it tooth and nail so that it gets downscaled or doesn't happen at all because they're concerned about this you know complex being in their backyard that doesn't fit the character of what they bought and those are the types of projects those are the types of initiatives that there's going to have to be compromise on if we're going to have any hope of solving these issues. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. And I think, look, there are there are all sorts of reasons people fight projects, right? Some of them are virtuous and some of them are invirtuous. And I'm not here to, to say that everyone who's ever had a complaint with an affordable housing program is doing so for bad reasons. Like it's definitely not, it's definitely not the case. And I think that there are opportunities. To, to work with people. What I'm talking about is why do we, why have we accidentally landed up in an architecture where the thing that we most need is hardest to get and the thing we least need is easiest to get? That does not make sense. Like that fundamentally needs to be shifted. And that needs to be shifted in process. It also needs to be shifted in allowable outcome, right? So right now we're going through something called land use coordination, and I will avoid my tendency to get way too in the weeds, but basically it means let's use every tool in our toolbox to end up at a result where it makes more financial sense for a free market developer to develop 100% affordable housing on a residential lot instead of that empty $20 million spec home, right? Now that's gonna take political will, right? There are, there, there are gonna be all sorts of reasons to wanna dip and dodge and move around that or compromise or whittle it down or water it down. But the truth is like, we could do that. And, and we should, like we should do that, right? And so like the combination of those two things, the aim and the process will get us a long way. There's a lot more we will have to do as a community to build and develop our own housing, to work on trade down programs, to deal with maintenance as we've talked about an upkeep of the existing system, to optimize a system where, you know, units have gone unused or are underused because 
a family of five is now one person, right? Like there's a lot of other steps, but fundamentally, can we just realign the process to support what we actually want? Those are really good points. Jason, any other thoughts? I mean, it's not just Aspen. It's hardly you guys are hardly alone in that that opposition yeah. you know to to housing projects every town has them and like skippy's very wisely said you know this is not not every project that's opposed is opposed because of you know neighbors who don't want uh the pores next to them you know that's not necessarily the the 100 argument but the the argument's everywhere and and it and it's stopping projects and it's miring them in lawsuits and it's forcing developers to walk away. We've seen it in Crested Butte. We've seen it in, you know, Vail. We see it in every town. So we need to find a way to find some compromise. And, you know, one developer told me in a story I recently wrote, we need to stop letting perfect be the enemy of good. Like, do you want 30 units or do you want five? You want 30. So what can we do for that 30? Does every affordable unit need, you know, a two car garage so they can store their skis and bikes? Probably not. So we need to, we need to find a way to quickly, efficiently build the housing that can house everybody. We've, we've eclipsed this as an affordable problem to an availability problem. There simply isn't enough pillows for, you know, people in these communities to live and work. And until we get on top of that, we're not going to be able to fix anything. So, you know, it, it really boils down to building these units now, yesterday, and getting folks in them. And, you know, then we can start talking about you know, the ultimate perfect affordable housing complex that has the perfect mix of bike storage and car parking lot, you know, slots and all the things that we all need and want. But we need to bridge this gap right now or we're in a lot of trouble. Skippy, any other parting thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just to to build on what, what Jason's saying, and, and we're, we're in a bit of a luxury position, right? In that we have a funding source and we have, you know, 30 years of development opportunity. So we do think about where the bike racks go because we want people to be invested in our community and enjoying their time here. But it's also about, you know, separating wants from needs and building for tomorrow instead of yesterday, right? Because so often what happens is we have arguments around quote unquote quality of life for the unit, which is a, a totally reasonable thing that we should be focused on, but we approach that problem through the lens of the development we did in the 1980s. Well, they really would have liked covered parking for two large cars. And like, I get it, that's great, except the thing is 20 years from now, families are not gonna have two large cars, right? And so can we allocate our space uh, more effectively now for the eventuality of the lived experience tomorrow, and in doing so, be more respectful of the underground or under underlying scarce resource, which is land, and get a better utilization or maximize each dollar and square foot spend towards affordable housing. And like that's something that I think we can do a much better job on. And it's not always easy for um, you know, the the human brain to sort of project into and live in the future. It's much easier for us to tether to the path, but it 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 provides an opportunity to align rather than misalign with our values. I love that sentiment. 
I really appreciate the time you guys have taken today to spend with me diving into this subject. It's a fascinating one. It's playing out in our towns as we speak. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to do your in-depth reporting on this subject and continuing to uncover these issues. And hopefully, you know, as you write the stories and as we consume them and we learn more and we can look at places like Aspen and others that are maybe ahead of the curve, uh, what are the lessons learned there? What can be done differently in some of these other more developing, less mature markets that are now facing this issue that have to address it? So it's fascinating. And uh, thank you guys for taking the time to be with me today. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. And, and if, it, if you'd permit me, I'd, I'd love to say just one more thing which is just, you know, we keep hearing the term Aspen ahead of the curve and like, it's, it's nice and it's appreciated, but the reality is like the curve is a parabola and at the top of the curve is where you start to decline precipitously. And we have every resource to actually solve this and, and really stay ahead of the curve. Um, but without active effort and showing up, we're not, we're going to become the community that had it all and lost it. And we're going to be looking in our rearview mirror like, what the hell happened? And if we continue to allow only those who say no to show up, no is what we're going to get. And so as community members who need housing or run businesses or just understand that having a full and lived in community is something that's great for our children to be part of, then we need to show up. And I know that's like really frustrating to hear from your elected official because you're like, I elected you to go do it. And it's like, yep. And I'm right there with you and I will do everything I can. But like the truth is how people show up is what happens. And like, I do not want to see us fall off that other edge of this cliff. That's a great point. You know, this is going to take a really community-wide effort. And if you haven't been going to your city council meetings and your planning zone commissions and, you know, staying abreast of what these plans are and don't show up to support these housings, you know who does show, show up, you know, and there tend to be the people that don't like the plan. So, yeah, you know, if, if you follow Skippy's advice and, and, you know, walk the talk, show up if it's critical find the time to to be a part of it hopefully we can keep seeing these uh sort of early evening meetings that involve zoom so we can really get more people i think we saw in the past year just uh, unprecedented civic involvement you know and these meetings so if we can keep up that pace and keep dialing into our city council meetings and our planning zoning meetings and our historic preservation meetings and and, and voicing our opinions i think we're going to be a better off, well-rounded, you know, democracy and, and being able to raise our voices. Thanks for listening to this episode of Selling the Mountains. You'll never miss an episode if you subscribe or follow the show. If you liked what you heard, please leave a short review and share it with a friend. For more information about Selling the Mountains, including feedback, suggestions, or sponsorship opportunities, please visit sellingthemountains.com and sign up for our newsletter. You can follow the show on Instagram or Facebook at Selling the Mountains. You can follow the host on Twitter at Christian Knapp or on Instagram at Napstagram. This show was produced in collaboration with Dustin H. James at Podboarder. Selling the Mountains is a production of Moment of Truth, LLC. All rights reserved.